0: You create ramps so that people can come into your church, right? Now, a ramp is a shorthand term I'm going to use for any accommodation. So you have wider doorways, maybe you have wider aisles, maybe you have some cutouts for wheelchairs. Maybe you have some special room where people can calm down. All these sorts of things are different ways of providing access so people can be present. And all those things would be present in a lot of churches But what's not in place is what I'll term social ramps. It's not just physically getting into the buildings that you can be physically present, it's how are you preparing an environment to receive someone who experiences the world so differently than you do.
1: Welcome to the Missing Voices Podcast. This podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. We're convinced that these often overlooked and forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. I'm Mary Sini, one of your co-hosts. And during this series, we will hear from some of our partners, coaches, theologians, and friends of the Missing Voices project. So, let's dive in. In this episode, we'll hear from Ben Connor. Ben's one of our theologians and residents from the Missing Voices project, and he brings a wealth of ministry experience in the space of youth with varying abilities. Fun fact, our connections with Ben actually stretch back a number of years. When Ben first joined us for a visit at Flagler College, he looked so familiar to me. I knew we had crossed paths in some way prior, but I just couldn't put my finger on it. So with a little digging, I realized that we both served at a Young Life camp one summer way back in the 90s. I was on summer staff, and Ben and his family were on assignment there with Ben doing program at Rockbridge that summer. I love these small world connections. And I bet if we kept digging, we'd all realize the close connections we hold in one way or another. Well, we hope you enjoy as you listen to Ben share today.
2: Okay, everybody, thanks so much for jumping on to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. We have Ben Connor with us here today. Ben, are you there? I'm here. Glad to be here. Ben Connor. Dr. Ben Connor up at Western Theological Seminary. I've known Ben for a couple of years. A couple of his books have really messed with me in the best of possible ways. uh, And I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. Ben is a professor at Western Theological Seminary, but he is also one of the theologians in residence with us in the Missing Voices Project. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about your work, what you teach, what you write about, all the things you care about.
0: All right. Well, I actually went to school to study mission and mission theology, but then I realized that missiology was something I like to look through rather than look at. So <laughs> I looked at uh, practical theology, and uh, and I found out those two things are have a lot in common. So I'm now a professor of practical theology, but my interests are— in youth ministry, disability studies, uh, mission and mission studies, evangelism, and um, as of late, horses, (laughs) and uh, asking questions like, if all of creation is redeemed and all of creation is participating in Christ, what does it mean to ask questions like, uh, what's the vocation of a horse?
2: Uh, I got to say, Ben, nobody listening to, that, uh, to this episode saw that coming. Um, <laughs> mission, youth ministry, practical theology, and brrr, horses. Uh, <laughs> so we'll have to do another episode about that once you, I know you're, you're uh, about to start a sabbatical where you're going to spend some real time doing some research there. And I can't wait to see what in the world you're talking about. Um, I know you well enough and I trust you well enough to know that there's going to be something incredible there. And I don't yet have eyes to see. So you can be the one to take us all there. That'll be cool. Um, and your background with youth ministry and disability studies <clears throat> in particular is what brought you uh, onto the radar with us at the Missing Voices Project. So tell us a little bit more, kind of zoom in on that, the disability studies and youth ministry and, and what you, uh, how that's been a part of your story and, and what that means to you.
0: So for 20 years, I was either a youth minister at a church or I was with Young Life and for seven of my years with Young Life, I ran Capernaum in mm. Williamsburg, Virginia, which is the arm of Young Life that works with young people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Mm. And this was in the earlier days of Capernaum. Um, there were a couple of different ways people were doing it. One, they had a completely separate group of kids with disabilities, and, and it never intersected with the main Young Life group at all. Another was they didn't change anything about Young Life, uh, the way that they ran their clubs and events, the way they did their camping, but they just tried to somehow include people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And I, I was trying to figure out what's a better way to go about doing this. Mm. And that that led to um, my second book, Amplifying Our Witness, which is asking those exact questions. Mm-hmm. And, then yeah. that, sorry. Go ahead. and then beyond that, um, I found that disability studies is, uh, is an unsettling discipline, that it defamiliarizes things um, in similar ways that studies of race are, are doing that now. It's pushing against self-sufficient people who are discipled into ways of possession, mastery, and control. And so uh, a lot of what so someone like Willie Jennings is doing with race is bringing up the very same issues that are brought up. If you look at your faith and you look at Scripture, you look at Revelation, you look at discipleship through the lens of disability studies, you see some of those same things are critiqued. Hmm. And and what I found was that um, there are all these treasures that need to be brought into the church, these Hmm. ways of looking at things, hermeneutical insights, ways of being in space, ways of moving through space, ways of interacting, that we learn only if we're with people with disabilities, only if we allow them to shape the spaces we share together. What's an example? What's an example of one of these treasures or these gifts? Well, one could be, um, so a a young lady with an intellectual disability who listens to your traditional sort of series of talks that try to lead you through faith, and you assume everybody's tracking with you um, that God created the world and Jesus came to save us, and, and in the end, welcome Jesus into your heart. But she's not following things in, intellectually. She's not following this linear thought pattern that's supposed to lead her to some sort of conclusion. Mm. So, but there's a gospel that's being proclaimed without words that says you belong here, that you're welcomed into this life. Mm. So when this young lady had a chance to respond in faith, she, uh, communicated, thank you, God, for bringing me into your life. Hmm. Which is actually a better gospel than the one she was being that, that she was being given, right? <laughs> so so there things like that, you know. And there's also just uh, I remember sitting next to somebody who was throwing rocks into some water, and I thought I'll just sit next to this this gentleman while he's throwing the rocks into the water. And I was just passing time throwing rocks into the water, but he was making fireworks. I realized he was making fireworks. So just hmm. the fascination with with little things. Here, here's another, one more example. Do it. I was at an academic conference in Scotland and I was talking about these kinds of things. And one of the people in, uh, who was in my session, the session I was leading said, I'm a woman with autism. And when I do research, I see colors and the colors are actually themes. So when I read, I see themes in colors. I don't have to try to do it. They're just there. And then I organize the colors. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that'd be nice. Yeah, I'm a little jealous of him. <laughs> so that's, a, that's some of the superhuman sort of powers. But then there are other things like uh, my friend Craig, who has the capacity to be present in ways that I can't be present with people. Uh, I've been trained to fix things, to solve things, to analyze things. And I have a mind that allows me to do that. Craig doesn't, but Craig does have the ability to be a non-anxious presence and to love people. So I have a lot to learn from Craig, and I need Craig, and I realize that.
2: So, all right, so you have these incredible stories of people that are making you aware of things that maybe you would not have been aware of before, and those, in some sense, can function as gifts to the church or to the body of Christ. And it seems to me that um, I'm guessing, Ben, that a lot of those gifts go unnoticed or unseen or unheard um, on the church
0: because they're not looking for those gifts. Right, or because the people aren't present. Right? Unfortunately, in the church, we value the same things that are valued in society, a certain kind of person that moves a certain way. A good evangelist is someone who has it together, who has a good speaking voice, who has a nice presence up front and can appeal to your mind.
1: Hmm.
0: right? Well, now you've, you've just excluded most of the people that I spent a lot of time hanging out with for seven years. However, I can talk about the power of their evangelistic efforts. Right.
2: But we wouldn't even know to call those evangelistic efforts because we're so shaped by this value system that has made us unaware of these other people.
0: Right. Yeah. So we skip over things that are obvious examples of it in the Bible. And and don't put him in that category a uh, prime example being john the baptist and so if i say what about the what about the witness of john the baptist everyone will think the odd guy out in the desert eating locust who then points to jesus right mm-hmm. but there was an earlier pointing to jesus when he was still in his mother's womb when he leapt mhm and that didn't require any of the capacities faculties of so-called abilities that we think someone needs in order to participate in Christian witness. Right. It was just a response and love that proclaimed it announced and in, and invited other people to recognize Jesus yeah. Christ as Lord. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Ben, it's so funny. I, I mean, I feel like
2: the Genesis of the missing voices project really goes back long ago when I was starting Capernaum here in St. Augustine, Uh, And I talked about this, I think, in the very first episode of this podcast, but uh, to a young man named James. And I spent a number of months with James, friending James. James uh, was nonverbal and had some pretty, uh, pretty pronounced physical constraints to his ability to move around and things like this. And but we spent a number of months together and just really connected. And then James died in a car accident. And I had the incredible gift or the opportunity to do his funeral and to try and put words to the beauty and goodness that I experienced in this person. Uh, But I realized in trying to put together those uh, that eulogy that none of the classic metrics that you would talk about in a eulogy applied. And yet I had encountered something so good and so beautiful and so, uh, well, I had encountered Christ in this person, but I didn't know how to talk about it with the sort of typical words that we would use. and that idea that somehow I encountered the presence of God in a person through very different, uh, through very different means or very different ways than I normally would um, has really dramatically affected me and shaped you know, my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of, of who I am, but also the way I think about ministry in such a profound way. And it was in your, one of your first books where you talked about this idea of evocative witness, that it draws something out uh, in other people. It evokes uh, an awareness of the gospel in others that maybe could not have happened with anybody else. You know, like I'm pretty convinced that I've been doing youth ministry for a number of years with a ton of different kids, and James offered something unique that I had not experienced in anyone else at the, until that point. Tell us about this idea of evocative witness and and the, the idea that these gifts are there and can be brought to the church. Um,
0: yeah, help us out with that. Well, you explained it pretty well. <laughs> well this episode's so, over. Thanks so much, Ben. <laughs> the thing that's most needed is a place to appear in order to have an evocative witness. I mean, most of the time we miss out on the evocative witness of people because they aren't there to evoke things in us. Mm. So the first thing that you need is a is a place to appear. So I have a, a friend named Xavier who expresses his joy with deep, deep joy with. Strong bounds. He he jumps and bounds and flaps. But he does this when he's connected, when he's joyful and excited. Now you think about a typical church. I mean, that's the most social skill intensive place you're going to go all week for many people. Wait, time out. Think about that. The church is the most social skill
2: intensive place that you would go all week. Yeah. Yeah. Which effectively means we have big, huge barriers or walls at the front door.
0: That's what it is. Yeah. And so these aren't, uh, so this is something worth talking about. So you create ramps so that people can come into your church, right? Now, a ramp is a shorthand term I'm going to use for any accommodation. So you have wider doorways. Maybe you have a hearing loop. Maybe you have wider aisles. Maybe you have some cutouts for wheelchairs maybe you have some special room where people can calm down you know buttons on the doors all these sorts of things are different ways of providing access so people can be present Uh, and all those things would be present in a lot of churches Mm -hmm. but what's not in place is what I'll term social ramps and I developed this from a friend of mine Jeff McNair but that it's not just physically getting into the buildings so that you can be physically present. It's how are you preparing an environment to receive someone who experiences the world so differently than you do.
1: Yeah.
0: So until a congregation is ready to receive a Xavier, I don't really want to take a Xavier into church because, as I mentioned, um, in many churches, if you if you're going to cough, you know, you're you're going to leave or. <laughs> I, have, I have I have a sneeze and I'm gonna leave and then come back or you know you're just afraid to uh, you know have any kind of disruption and and you fear that if you bring Xavier and Xavier's engaged and excited, the very thing that should be received is praise and said will be squelched. Yeah And how many people there wish they had that freedom right?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's a great idea to, to work on these physical ramps, these these accommodations, but without the social ramps, it's all for naught. Yeah, that's a lot, Ben. That's enough right there, man. Like we could just stop now. I feel like you've already given people too much to think about, but we'll push forward. <laughs> so, okay, man, we've got this idea of evocative witness uh, we, we've talked a little bit about social ramps and physical ramps and what that looks like. I, I'm just imagining, um, while well, I'm imagining a youth worker listening to this wondering like, yes, I know, uh, these couple families in our church or these couple young people in our community or whatever. And we want to make room for them to be in our church and, and the work that we've been doing in the missing voices project and, and sort of like the context of this season of the podcast is design thinking, trying to get into a way of designing our ministries so that uh, these young people can belong, like you talked about earlier. It's interesting you use the word um, appearance, like the, the, the evocative witness cannot really take place without appearing or being in the presence of someone. And in the design thinking toolkit, I guess you could say, uh, to, you know, the key to practicing empathy or to letting empathy be our, our sort of leading edge is to get proximate with people, to get up close and, and face-to-face with and in relationship with someone. And that there's no way to understand who they are and what it means for them to belong without, at the very least, getting to know the person and listening to the person. Um, and so there's this idea within design thinking called uh, you know, identifying and understanding the extreme user. And the notion is that if you can understand the extreme user, that you can bring the logic of that person's experience back to bear for the larger group. I would translate that into your work by saying, hey, those gifts and the treasures that we experience in young people with disabilities, they teach us something about youth ministry writ large when we're willing to slow down and listen to these young people who have historically been marginalized in the first place. These these gifts and these treasures bound up within the evocative witness of this young person really might be a way for us to imagine faithful ministry for everybody. It's not about ability and disability any longer. It's about learning about faithful ministry. What would you say to that kind of way of thinking? You, you buy into that or what?
0: I do, yeah. And I think there are a number of places you can point to to demonstrate how this is the case, that um, the ability, disability uh, construct is not Christian. <laughs> it's functional, in mm-hmm. society, as in some people need certain benefits and support, and so you have a label that that gives them the supports that they need, or it's a badge worn in honor. Many people that don't see disability as a deficit at all, but see it as part of their identity. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole challenge with what is disability in the first place, right?
2: Right. The language betrays the endeavor.
0: Right. Right. And, and then you could say uh, some of my friends in, in this culture, because it's a hypercognitive sort of technical culture, find themselves disabled and could be a completely different culture where they wouldn't have any of these categories that we consider, you know, any situation that would consider them disabling. So then you wonder, is the disability with the person, is it with the culture that's organized in such a way that uh, weeds people out? um but that being said we have things in the Christian tradition where we see that the differences that we have along this ability spectrum don't really matter and some of those things are Christian practices hmm. Christian practices are as inclusive as you can possibly be it to to be to participate in the Christian practice of hospitality. You don't have to have a certain, there's no certain intellectual threshold to participate. Your IQ doesn't have to be a certain level. You don't have to have s- certain reasoning skills. Sure. You don't have to be able to, you don't have to be ambulatory. You don't have to be able to hear or see. Sure. All the things that, that we sort of use to separate and categorize people fall apart when you talk about the Christian practice of hospitality. Because the true host is God, no matter who's. Playing the role of guest or host at the time right and so you you encounter God in hospitality now there's specific things that we do that some people can do more easily than others but in terms of a practice the practice of hospitality can be that warmth of just being close and being present or it can be you know doing all the things that need to be done to to make somebody feel self safe and welcomed. Mm-hmm. So it's just such a a broad practice that has has a history that we draw from in the Christian tradition. There's a social aspect. We learn it from others. We do it together. It's not just an individual thing. So a lot of times we think of Christian discipleship. We think of individual capacities being applied. You pray, you read the Bible, you do service. And it's odd that 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 would be the case because we're called to be part of a community and to participate in Christ. Hmm. And the emphasis so much in scripture is that the weakness of our faith. And so Christian practices are always communal. And so there's always a role for anyone with any kind of ability or capacity to participate in a Christian practice. So a Christian practice of Bible study can be shaped by the people who are there reading the Bible together.
2: Right.
0: Right. Yeah. Or of prayer. I mean, then we, I have a friend who's not particularly verbal. Um, but when it comes to prayer, I hear similar kind of affirmations that I hear other times, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's, you learn a lot about um, friendship, about hospitality, about care for the body, about, about, um, Everything, you know, just just when you're around people with disabilities who, because they live in a world that's not designed for them, have had to be expert life hackers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so they have different ways of going about doing things. And so and ultimately what you learn is more about what it means to bear the image of God, which isn't, a, again, an individual thing, except for in Jesus Christ. And then us, as we participate together with each other in Christ, we become that image of God. And and in that, we come to learn that the image of God has Down syndrome and the image of God has autism. And the image of God has cerebral palsy. To say more about that. Bring us along with that thought. Well, I mean, unfortunately, when we start to think about image of God, we We take what we think is the ultimate human projected up to God and try to live into it. So we think of it in terms of certain kinds of creative powers or uh, rational capacities or something like that. And many times when we construct this notion of image of God, we're excluding people who we would say are are disabled, particularly intellectually and developmentally disabled. Um, But image of God has uh there's one image of God and that's Jesus Christ the image of the invisible God mm-hmm. and then we all participate in that together and so um in that sense you know the image of God has whatever you know disabilities and that's not a problem it's it's not a problem to be overcome it's just the mode through which God's spirit's going to be working in the world to, to work out God's redemptive purposes Hmm. and, and until you're around people with disabilities, listening to them, talking to them, particularly intellectual and developmental disabilities I've found, and until you're close enough, uh, to listen close enough to really hear, then, then you're not gonna, you're gonna take some other paradigm for understanding what they're doing i mm-hmm. suppose yeah you're going to um i don't know a good way to say it but uh, you'll miss out on the treasure that's there and you'll find some other category and and stick what they're doing in there and 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 it'll it'll come across as junior varsity spirituality instead <laughs> of genuine christian discipleship Wait, okay
2: what does it look like to go uh, from jv to the big leagues then like how would, you know, you've got a youth minister who is taking steps, they've got the physical ramps, they're trying to play with the idea of social ramps, because honestly, Ben, I mean, this is really a foreign idea, and it's not celebrated by our culture really on any level. Um, and so this is a sort of upstream notion that you're, you're calling for. So is discipleship, by the way, right? I mean, like, the idea of loving your neighbor, or even your enemy, much less your enemy, like, that itself is, is upstream and is not celebrated by culture. So um, what does it look like to try and move in that direction or to grow in your ability to see, to hear, to listen, to love, to be loved by, you know, quote unquote uh, the other, that these, these young people that are incredible gifts, but that we just don't know. Uh, we, we've not had this experience that you're describing.
0: How can we move in that direction? Well, a first simple step for many people is learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Okay. Because it's that unsettling that's going to allow you to see things you didn't see before a defamiliarizing. And, and so, um, I mean, the first key is just learn how to be present and, and being present doesn't always mean bringing people into space that you're controlling, but it means going to spaces where they're more familiar. Hmm. And so you can see them um, interacting, reacting, uh, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So the first step is having a deep presence in the life of other people. And that moves it beyond uh, simply a programmatic effort of a church that feels like it should be inclusive to uh, sacramental engagement of Another, where you expect to see Christ. Friendship. Another friendship. Yeah, so that's friendship. Moving from instrumental friendship, trying to get to know someone so they'll be part of your program, to sacramental friendship.
2: Ooh, Ben, that's a big one right there, man. That's another episode. I feel like all you're doing right now is laying seeds down for other episodes that you need to explain all this stuff to us. (laughs) So, okay, the first step, presence. Presence. Sacramental friendship, not instrumental, but a friendship where you're encountering the presence of God in and through that person, in and through that relationship.
0: Right. Yeah. And if people are doing that, then you will naturally start setting up the social ramps that are necessary for someone to participate in things you're doing in your congregation. Mm-hmm. Because when Xavier gets up to bounce, the people who spend time with him will say, oh, that's just Xavier. That's what he does when he's joyful. So we want to make that they okay. tight. No one will whisper. No one will look at each other, wondering what are we supposed to do here. Right.
2: Right. Okay. Which, as you're saying this, I think to myself, uh, you know, the conversation I had with Kinda Dean about innovation, and like the nature of innovation, like why do we innovate, and is that even the right word? And really, it just comes down to love. Like if I love Xavier. I'm going to find a way, come hell or high water, to make it work for Xavier to be there because Xavier belongs there, and we're missing out on something if he's not there.
0: Right. You know, we have a more motivation to do that uh, in that the God that we worship is a God who understands universal design and learning. <laughs> that is to say, uh, universal design and learning says that there should be uh, multiple ways of of teaching material, multiple ways for students to demonstrate they understand and get it. Yeah. Um, And if you think about all the different ways that God self-reveals and teaches us, um, we know these things have to be going on. It's not like if you take the median curve of intelligence and understanding that those are the people who really know God and relate to God and the people on the margins, not so much, you know, they have a secondhand sort of view. No, I mean, it's all accommodation. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, Karl Barth had to be accommodated to by God because he, he couldn't comprehend God. Just like Craig Swanenberg, my friend, with CP and intellectual disability has to be accommodated to by God to know God. This, this whole notion of accommodation that is always going on. And that's this universal design and learning principle. And so the key for us is to get close enough to uh, notice, to, to get the, um, to do priestly listening. And there's just no
2: substitute for that. There's no substitute for life on life, for relationship, for friendship, for love. I mean, it's as basic as that.
0: Yeah, I'd compare it to this. You can, if you have a conflict with someone, you can read all the books that you want to about forgiveness. But until you go to the person and ask for forgiveness and receive it, you'll never experience the internal goods of the Christian practice of forgiveness. Nor
2: would you be reconciled.
0: Right. And so uh, all all these, anything that you're going to do programmatically, anything that you're going to do as a church begins with relationships.
1: Mm.
2: Okay, so we have presence and then this idea of getting close, of, of listening, hearing, seeing. Um, and then we have this idea, I don't know, what would you call it? Accommodation or like of, of making it work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, so you start to figure that out with the next word. So presence, intention, dimension are the three words I use to think about it. Okay. Intention is where you're actually setting up specific programs or specific uh, places to address uh, the lived experience of disability and the fact that people with disabilities have largely been excluded from our churches. And so that's where you talk about programs. But even as you're talking about programs, remember that all your programs are proclaiming something. Yeah. And, and that all your programs need to be designed um, with this extreme user in mind. Right. And that this isn't going to mean a loss for you. It's going to mean a gain. I mean, too often we think of disability in terms of loss. Uh, I was learning this when I was learning about deafness Mm -hmm. and and I always thought of it in terms of hearing loss. But then as I was reading books by deaf scholars, I came across a concept of deaf gain. That people who are deaf have a different orientation towards space that they actually see people who talk as having a disability because these, these verbal people miss out on the many ways that we communicate other than the words we're saying, Mm. something like 750 ways other than the words you choose. Wow. And so deaf people move through space differently. They organize their lives together differently. They do theology more communally because cause, uh, they're used to being, uh, you know, sort of thinking and working and developing communally. So that's a gain. And I already told you about this woman on the autism spectrum who gave me a glimpse into autistic gain. Um,
2: but so those are the examples of the treasures that – You know, folks like you and I who might be hearing people could say, hey, maybe we have something to learn about how we do theology from our friends in the deaf community.
0: Yeah, I'd say that. But then it also sounds too much like superhuman powers or something like that, because Mm -hmm. there's also gain in the person who seems to be completely unresponsive, that doesn't seem to have any agency. Yet when that person is in the room with you, the people around that person have to care for that person. Help them, feed them, help them use the bathroom, help them change, be attentive to them in ways that develop the fruit, the very fruit of the Spirit that we hope discipleship will form in people. Patience, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Those are the very things we hope for in people. Yet here's someone who doesn't have any powers by the world's standards, who who doesn't have some special ability to see colors, who doesn't arrange space, they're just put wherever they are. That's a true evocative witness right there. That's the shaping and forming of a community that's different because this person's present than it would have been if this person wasn't present.
2: Yeah. And it's amazing because I feel like I hear most churches or organizations or uh, sort of conversations around programmatic development, they're usually aiming at the middle of the bell curve. You know they're, they're usually aiming at, well, here's where the majority of the people are, and this will satisfy the majority of the, of the group or whatever. This is a very different way of thinking about um, how we organize ourselves or, or design our, our communities and design our lives um, with these extreme users in mind, trusting that, in fact, there will be something to be gleaned that we would have missed otherwise without this young person that you're talking about, for example. So, okay, presence. And then an intention, which is the efforts you make uh, to accommodate or to welcome or to truly engage, right? And right. then we go from there.
0: And then dimension is the last one. And that's where um, this, I think you've moved across the ability, disability, divide so much that it's just the kind of community that you are. So mm-hmm. that's where you've done the training of your congregation, around social ramps, where you've encouraged your congregation to go out beyond the walls of the church, to be places where people with disabilities are gathering, to be involved in their lives there, Any anything that you do in terms of, I you know churches don't do a lot of cultural competency training necessarily, right? Um, but they should. <laughs>
2: I mean, I laugh because I'm like, I can't even think of really anybody that's trying to do that in the first place. I mean, you know.
0: Yeah. But so. you can do it around issues of ability and disability. Just um, th- there's a number of ways you can add that into the regular things that you're doing uh, in, the, in the course of a church so that a sermon that covers a situation that, where there's a disability in a gospel then would would challenge the notion that the disability is the problem that has to be cured by God. Mm-hmm. But, that, that's, you know, there's, there's ways to challenge that. Or, uh, again, a church where disability a dimension or a ministry where disability is already a dimension of what they're doing is going to have a place for Xavier where when he bounces, it's no big deal because everybody's used to that kind of thing. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I guess a church would endeavor to do that. Uh, probably because there's going to be some minority voice that is like doggedly committed to a person. Like it probably always boils down to a face and a name and a story and one of love that says it comes back to Xavier, right? It's, it's not going to mm-hmm. remain theoretical, uh, and get much traction when it becomes a person. Then all of a sudden people are like, well, of course we want to find a way to make this work. Mm-hmm. And now we're open to learning and growing and becoming defamiliarized like you said
0: yeah yeah that's uh that's it back to relationships
2: okay so and this is good man this is it's just so interesting though because it really does like I mean, you're essentially calling for a conversion of the mind and a conversion of the imagination in a way that is like all the way down to the roots you know like uh, the way that we've been raised in the world. And again, maybe this is the parallel to race. You know, like uh, we have been so conditioned to make these assumptions and thoughts and um, about one another in a way that is reductive. I mean, we are seeing a fraction of the person when we stop at their ability or disability.
0: And that's ableism. Yeah, that's a definition of, of ableism right there. Disableism is if you're, uh, you know, you you act Harshly, or take advantage of people with disabilities, or see people with disabilities as as lesser beings. Now, there's some people that think that way, but most people, um, you know, particularly who are working with youth, have seen television shows with people with disabilities, or have been in inclusive education environments. They've grown up around people with disabilities, so you don't see very much ableism, but what you see is much more sinister, and that's ableism. And that's that life is set up for a particular body that has certain capacities, abilities, speed of thinking and processing, Hmm. and that anything outside of that is a problem to be solved that needs uh, therapy or medicine or a special room. Right.
2: But isn't it – I mean, Ben, it's so interesting – you you said in the very beginning, like you do disability studies, right? So on some level, shouldn't that just be like ministry?
0: Well, that's what it ends up being functionally. So I mean, we we have this program at Western Theological Seminary called the Graduate Certificate in Disability and Ministry, and what that does is just prepare people for ministry. It teaches people how to be more attentive to people and structures and, and right sorts of things.
2: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, I. It would be really interesting in the same way that so many people over this last year have uh, become more internally, or or I guess uh, more reflective of the ways in which they've been shaped by racism. It'd be so, I don't even know how we could invite people into this necessarily, other than being confronted with the beauty of a person. But to, to critically reflect on the ways in which ableism has shaped our minds, our thoughts, our assumptions, our imagination, our dreams. I mean, it just it's, that's that's fascinating.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's fun, and that's what I. So that's the project I'm working on now. So you ask what kind of things I'm working on when I was introducing myself. Uh, sure. My large project is called disabling theological education, and by disabling, I mean taking away the ableist biases. Wow! In theological education, and so um, I'm editing a a special edition of a journal that's all about that. And all the contributors are trying to do that in one way or another.
2: Hmm. Okay. That's going to be interesting because I, you, you know, you're tackling the sacred cow there. Uh, I mean, our, our, even just the notion when you say, as soon as you say the word education, all sorts of assumptions, Ah, uh, the way in which we do you know transfer of information or content or lecture or the way that we do assessments. I mean, I don't want to get too far down into that rabbit trail because that's something I could geek out on, but um, that's fascinating. I mean, it really is something that we could take that lens of, okay, let's you know reflect on ableism and apply that to just about any category. And the one I think for the listeners of this podcast that is maybe, most challenging like you said the you know church is the what do you call it the most social uh socially intensive social
0: skill intensive place you're going to go all week
2: yeah and that is because of ableism yeah and it has nothing to do with our proclamation of the gospel the invitation to life with Christ or to discipleship or mission or anything it's just a social construct of what we have come to value uh and that has then truncated or limited our ability to build Christian community or to participate in Christian community.
0: Right. And sometimes, uh, it's couched in terms of order, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh,
2: Talking to the Presbyterian. Yeah. But you guys are doing something different with the friendship house. Tell us about that. That sounds like, uh, an effort to deconstruct, uh, communities defined by ableism.
0: Yeah, we're doing a couple things with Friendship House. One, just the Friendship House is a residence on a seminary's campus where young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities live with seminary students. And the way it was designed is that the, the, the friend residents, as they were called, were learning life skills and had jobs in the community and, and were trying to develop independence. And the seminary students then would be impacted in the fact that they live with young people with disabilities. What what we found is that we are um, coming up with an understanding of vocation that is what we're called to do before God. You can talk about many vocations that you have. Your primary vocation is to... Uh, love God with your heart, mind, strength, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. And then you have other vocations, things that you do, callings that you have. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, But we had a very uh, sort of American, North American, Western enlightenment understanding of vocation that was dominating the Friendship House. And there was never any sense that the people who lived in Friendship House were ministers or potential ministers or anything, they were just the friends who did their jobs who lived at the house.
2: Really, so this yeah. is sort of like what you've learned is what you're saying.
0: Like, right? yeah, this is what we learned. This was a problem, and and then that, of course, then colors the understanding of seminary students. So what we we did an interesting, uh, what it was sort of an experiment, but it was also, I think, a faithful response to things we were sensing, in that one of the residents of Friendship House became a student in our Hebrew program. And the way we do Hebrew isn't like the way I learned it in school, which was all uh, exhausting, memorizing a lot of words and (laughs) paradigms and these sorts of things. The way we do it's more like a Montessori school. You go into the Hebrew classroom and there's stuffed animals and they tell you to do stuff and you actually do it. You stand on the desk, you get down, you move around. They, they enact the different Um, uh, narratives from from the Hebrew scriptures and, Mm -hmm. and in acting they learn them and they sort of embody these words and the way that it was taught Amanda was able to do that quite well and we noticed that it changed the classroom from one of competition because everyone wants to get a good grade you need it for your transcripts you might need it to support a scholarship or something like that Um, That wasn't at all the focus. The focus was, how do we support Amanda in this? So they sort of gathered around Amanda, Wow. and and it changed it from competitive to collaborative. And many of the things that they were trying to teach in the Hebrew class, because it's more than just learning a language, it's about learning this way of discipleship, Mm. they were able to do because of Amanda's presence. And so that's that changed our understanding of what Friendship House is. And just this year, we started what we're calling the Friendship House Fellows Program, where people uh, the the people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who live at Friendship House can take a class a year at the seminary and then they do an internship at a church. It's a five. It's a five or six year yeah. program. And when they finish, they get a certificate of Christian ministry.
2: I mean, this is going to change the seminary.
0: Absolutely. It's going to change it with presence because they're in the classrooms. It's different. It's going to change it with intention. It's a specific program. And we've already worked on the dimension, creating the environment in which they're going to feel welcomed and not like this is a special, special class.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to think like the ripple effect of that because you as a as a seminary professor and as a seminary you know the institution of the seminary there part of your job obviously is that you are training people for pastoral ministry and so there's going to be this pipeline of people that leave western and go into the life of the church having had that experience uh, and then they'll arrive in these congregations equipped to reshape
0: their communities as such. I mean, I'm sure that's obviously what you're thinking. That's the hope. Absolutely, that's the hope. And we just had we just had Eric uh, Carter of Vanderbilt do a, a longitudinal study on the impact of of some of this, and we're finding that this is the case. He's gonna he's gonna take another large section now that we've started this Friendship House Fellows program, and see if it's if it's doing the things we hope it's it's doing. But it is true that often it's if the pastor has a kid with a disability, then all of a sudden there's a program or, or there's attention for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So we're hoping if you can have pastors who have been through this this experience at Western. So that's not just people who are in the graduate certificate in disability and ministry program. That's people who take Hebrew, which is everybody. Right. 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 right we hope that it's going to make a difference in that regard.
2: So it's interesting because the, you know, I'm sure that some of the, um, some of the people listening to this are people that have had some sort of profound experience and they're in their congregation and they're just, they're just begging for others to jump on board and to be open to these sort of shifts. And they may or may not be the senior pastor, so they can't necessarily like, you know, lead the thing in that direction. But They're the kind of people who are looking to have these little provocative witnesses uh, that are, you know, sort of counterintuitively existing in the life of the church and really are signs of beauty. Um, But there's people out there that are doing this work, and I I invite those that are listening uh, to sort of follow along. I mean, this is why we have been on our team with the Missing Voices Project, is that we're hoping to not only help a few congregations do this work in particular, but to learn from those congregations as they open the door and move in that direction. Um, and then, you know, our goal, our research goal at least is to see, well, what are the practices of youth ministry that we learn by attending to these young people at the margins that maybe, maybe those practices could be bought, you know, sort of brought back to the center for everybody uh, in a way that makes youth ministry more holistic and faithful and, and uh, maybe a, a more faithful witness really. So that's amazing, Ben. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that story. I didn't, I didn't know that you guys had had gone through that with the Friendship House. I hadn't heard that yet.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's it's been very, it's been very transformative. I mean, it's it's it started that I was interested in this subject, and as I've developed it, I've recruited more professors and more staff to be a part of it, and now it's it's who we are as a community. Yeah, I believe it. So it takes time. And and it took the presence, intention, dimension. It took doing an accessibility audit. It took uh, special training sessions for faculty and staff to prepare the environment to receive people with disabilities. But in in the end, then now you receive these perspectives and treasures. And and actually, one of the students who was in my GCDM program is now – doing one of the articles that's going to be in this special edition of the Journal of Disability and Religion. Wow. And it's interestingly entitled, uh, I don't remember the title exactly, but it's her move from, um, in education, her experience of education, how she realized that she doesn't have to be a super crip anymore, but she can be misfitting. And that's good. That's a good kind of disruption. So a super crip, is someone with a disability, she has cerebral palsy. Uh, Unless you're used to hearing her talk, you might have a hard time understanding what she's saying. She has mobility challenges. She's a wheelchair user. She needs some supports. She has a support dog as well. Uh But she, uh, and so she used to think that I have to overcome all this and work twice as hard as anyone Mm. so that I can be I can, you sort of super crip you, you, you're an overachiever and people might say, well, I couldn't even tell you were disabled, that kind of a thing.
2: And that would have been an affirmation. At
0: that point, it might've been an affirmation to her, but then she realized that God didn't screw up, that I'm made this way for a purpose. And it, it gives me a different kind of perspective on the world. I interpret things differently, I inhabit space differently, I move at a different pace that allows me to notice things other people can't notice. Wow. So now I intentionally misfit. And that's yeah. a good thing. It's for the sake of the community that I misfit.
2: Yeah. Man, that's incredible. <laughs> okay, Ben, we're coming up on an hour and I don't want to uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but Um, I do think that you've given us some incredible ideas to think about the extreme user and and becoming proximate and uh, empathy and uh, social ramps and physical ramps and presence and tension, dimension and um, ableism. Good Lord, this thing has been full. So uh, in closing, I want you to imagine that some of our listeners are youth workers that are genuinely wanting to grow, to learn, to move towards young people with abilities, disabilities, and everything in between in their communities. What sort of blessing or charge or benediction might you offer those folks?
0: You know, I'm I'm pretty boring with this kind of stuff. And honestly, I would still say, may the grace of Christ our Savior and love of God our Father and fellowship of the Spirit be with you now and forever. But when I say that, mm-hmm. you hear everything we just talked about. Mm. Particularly when I talk about the fellowship of the Spirit, you'd realize that the Spirit is surprising you and and has treasures in store for you and and for your community of faith that you aren't going to experience unless everybody's present. Mm. Amen.
2: Amen to that. Ben, thank you for your time. Thank you for being a part of the Missing Voices Project. Thank you for the book that I read however many years ago that talked about evocative witness that has pretty much forever changed my life. Uh, And I'm grateful that you were willing to jump on the podcast with us. So thank you.
0: Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to be part of it and excited about what you're doing.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. If you want to be one of the first to hear about a new episode being released, or you want to make sure you don't miss out on hearing from one of our guests, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram and see what we're up to in St. Augustine within the Flagler College Youth Ministry Program. For resources connected to our podcast guests and topics, head over to the resources tab on the Missing Voices webpage at missingvoices.flagler.edu.